welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we're talking about the military mobilization that Putin has declared in the war against Ukraine in Russia. We're also talking about a protest in Iran over the death of a young woman in police custody. And we are also discussing the BBC and PBS teaming up to spread misinformation about Brazil's Bolsonaro. And at 3.20 p.m. Eastern time, we'll be opening the phone lines to you. But before we can move on, at this point, I would editorialize the latest developments uh, in the Ukrainian war. And that is that Vladimir Putin has declared a partial military mobilization to protect Russia, as he says. But rather than editorialize, I think it's best that we hear in his own words what Vladimir Putin has to say for why this action was done. Dear friends, the subject matter of my address is the situation in Donbass and the special military operation on its liberation from the neo-Nazi regime that seized power in Ukraine in 2013 as a result of the armed coup d'etat. I address you, all the citizens of our country, people of various generations and age, to the people of our great homeland, to all who has united great historic Russia, to soldiers and officers, volunteers who are now fighting at the front line, who are their fighting position to our brothers and sisters, people of the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republic, Kherson and Zaporozhye regions, and other liberated territories, liberated from neo-Nazi regime. I'm going to speak about the necessary emergency steps to defend the sovereignty, security, and territorial integrity of Russia, about the support of willingness and aspiration of our compatriots to define their own future and to counter the desire of the Western elites who want to preserve their supremacy and they want to suppress any sovereign and independent centers of development, to continue to blatantly enforce their will on other countries and peoples, to impose their pseudo-values on them. The goal of the West to weaken and to eventually destroy our country they speak directly that in 1991 they managed to divide the Soviet Union and now the time has come to do the same with Russia. That it should collapse into many regions that will be at war with each other. And these are the plans they have been having for a long time. They were promoting armed groups in caucus. They were putting NATO infrastructure close to our borders. And for decades, they were cultivating hatred to Russia, first of all, and Ukraine, that they were turning into anti-Russia at bridge. And they turned Ukrainian people into cannon fodder, and they pushed them to start the war against our country. They started this war back in 2014. They were using armed forces against civilians. They organized genocide and terror against the people who refused to recognize the power 
that came to power in Ukraine as a result of coup d'etat and after today's Kyiv regime basically publicly refused to resolve the issue in Donbass peacefully and they started talking about their willingness to have nuclear weapons, it became absolutely clear that the large-scale assault in Donbass, like it happened two times before, is inevitable. And then it would have led to the assault on the Russian Crimea, on the Russian Federation. That's why the decision about the preemptive military operation was the only possible step. Its main goal is to liberate the entire territory of Donbass, have always been the main goal and top priority. The Lugansk People's Republic has been almost completely liberated from neo-Nazis. There is still fighting going on in the Donetsk People's Republic. Over eight years, Kyiv regime has created multi-layered defensive infrastructure and assaulting them directly would have resulted in heavy casualties. That's why our armed forces and armed forces of the Donbass republics are trying to save lives and military equipment, and they are moving step by step, gradually liberating their territories and the cities and towns of their republics. They are liberating people who Kyiv regime turned into human shields, as you know, Professional soldiers are participating in the special military operation who have contracts with the armed forces. And there are volunteer units who fight shoulder to shoulder with them. People of various age and professions, they follow the call of their heart to defend the people and the territory of Donbass. That's why I have instructed the Ministry of Defense to determine the legal status of a volunteer and of the fighters of the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics. They should have the same legal status as soldiers of the Russian army, including health care and social guarantees. And the special attention should be paid to organizing supplies for the volunteer units with equipment and material to resolve the priority tasks to defend Donbass, our forces, using the plans and decisions of the Ministry of Defense and General Staff, have liberated vast territories of the Kherson and Zaporozhye regions and a number of other territories. As a result, there is a long line of contact that is longer, greater than 1,000 kilometers. And here is what I want to say publicly for the first time after the beginning of the special military operation, including during the talks in Istanbul, the Kyiv representatives reacted to our suggestions and proposals quite positively. And we talked about guaranteeing security of Russia and guaranteeing its interests, but it was obvious that the West was not happy with the peaceful resolution. So after the compromise was reached, Kiev was directly instructed to undermine all the agreements. More weapons were pumped into Ukraine. The Kiev regime used new gangs of mercenaries and neo-Nazis. And the units trained by the NATO standard and led by the Western instructors joined the fight. At the same time, reprisals across Ukraine against their own citizens strengthened. And it started right after the coup d'etat, armed coup d'etat in 2013. The intimidation policy, terror, violence has been becoming more and more massive, more and more barbaric. I would like to emphasize we are aware that most people who live 
at the liberated territories. First of all, I'm talking about the historic lands of new Russia. They don't want to be under the neo-Nazi regime. In Zaporozhye, in Kherson, in Lugansk, in Donetsk, they can see the atrocities that neo-Nazi are carrying out in the areas they captured. Followers of Bandera and Nazi death squad, they torturing people. They put them to prison. They retaliate against civilians in Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republic and Zaporozhye and Kherson regions before the hostilities more more than 7.5 million people used to leave. Many of them had to become refugees to leave their homes. And those who stayed, I'm talking about some 5 million people, they have to leave under constant shelling and rocket attacks against neo-Nazi gangs. They are carrying out terrorist attacks against civilians. And we have no right to leave people who are close to us to these tortures, we have to listen to their call who they want to determine their own future, their own fate. The parliament of the Lugansk and Donetsk republics and administration of the Zaporozhye and Kherson regions made a decision about carrying out referenda about the future of these regions and they appealed to us, to Russia, to support this decision. I would like to emphasize we will do everything to provide safe conditions to hold the referenda so that they could express their will and make the decision about their future and the decision that will be made by the majority of the people of the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics of the Kherson and Zaporozhye regions, we will support this decision. Today, our armed forces, as I have said, are acting along more than 1,000 kilometer long front line. They are fighting not just against Nazi units, but against the collective West war machine. And in this situation, I think the following steps have to be taken. And it is completely adequate towards the threat that we are facing, namely to defend our motherland, its sovereignty and territorial integrity, to defend safety of the people at the liberated territories. I think we should suggest the proposal of the Minister of Defense and General Staff about starting partial mobilization in the Russian Federation. Once again, we're talking about partial mobilization. Only those citizens who are currently in the reserve will be called to arms. First of all, those who have certain experience, who served in the army, who has necessary skills and competence, they will pass additional military training before they will be sent to the units, considering the experience of the special military operation. The decree on partial mobilization has been signed. In accordance with the legislation, we will inform about that chambers of the Federal Assembly and the State Duma. The mobilization will be launched today, starting with September 21st. I instruct the heads of the regions to give any possible support in this effort. I would like to emphasize especially that the citizens of Russia who will be mobilized will receive the status and all the social guarantees and all the payments that the soldiers who have contracts with the army have. And the decree on the partial mobilization also stipulates certain additional measures on the state contract for the military industrial complex. Because 
These companies have the direct responsibility to increase the number of the military equipment to use additional industrial capacities. And all the matters of the research and financial support of the military industrial enterprises should be resolved by the government immediately. Dear friends, in their aggressive anti-Russian policies, the West has crossed the line. We keep hearing threats against our country, against our people. Certain irresponsible politicians from the West, they don't just say about their plans to supply long-range assault weapons to Ukraine, systems that would allow them to strike Crimea and other regions of Russia. Such terrorist attacks, including using the Western weapons, are also used against the Belgorod and Kursk regions, using the contemporary systems, aviation, satellites, strategic unmanned aerial vehicles. And NATO is performing reconnaissance across the entire Russian border. In Washington, London, Brussels, they push Kyiv to try to move the hostilities to our territories. They don't even hide it when they are saying that Russia should be destroyed at the field of battle. And they should deprive us of any kind of sovereignty. They should rob our country of everything. They have started nuclear blackmail. I'm not only talking about the attacks against Zaporozhye nuclear power station that is promoted by the Western creators, but I'm talking about the statements about high-level representatives of the NATO countries about the possibility of using weapons of mass destruction against Russia, nuclear weapons. And those who make such statements against Russia, I would like to remind them that our country also possesses various type of strike weapons. And in some components, we have more modern weapons than NATO countries. And if the territorial integrity of our country is threatened to defend and protect our country and our people, we will use all the means that we have. And I'm not bluffing. The citizens of Russia can be confident that we will defend the territorial integrity and sovereignty of our country. And I would like to emphasize it with any means that we have in our possession. And those who are trying to blackmail us with nuclear weapons, I would like to remind them that the wind can blow towards them as well. In the destiny of our people, it is to stop those who want to dominate the world, who want to enslave our homeland, our fatherland. And we will do that now as well. That's how it will happen. I trust in your support. And to continue the discussion about the implications of Russia's uh, declaring a partial mobilization, I'm happy to be joined by international affairs and security analyst Mark Sloboda. Mark, thanks so much for joining me. Jackie, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on by any means necessary. And definitely glad to have you on today as we need to really contextualize uh, Putin's speech, some of the things that he raised, some of the issues that he raised in that speech, particularly about uh, the attitude of the West toward Russia. And I want to start there because Putin pointed out in his speech that the West's current goal is to destroy Russia. He said the purpose of this West is to weaken, divide and ultimately destroy our country. Country. And he noted that uh, the people in the West have been saying that in 1991, they were able to split to Soviet Union. And now the time has come for Russia itself. I mean, 
We know that historically this is absolutely true because we've been saying this for years and years. But in Russia, among the Russian people, do you get the sense, Mark, that this really is common knowledge to everyone in the world, particularly people in Russia? Um, and, and we in the United States, in the West, are the ones who don't get this. Yeah, I, I, I think that that is an established fact. Uh, first of all, it's a, an established historical fact. I mean, um, the U.S., uh, along with several other uh, Western powers, invaded uh, the nascent Soviet Union just after World War I uh, in what is commonly referred to in, in almost cartoonish terms when it is brought up in U.S. history as the polar bear expedition. Um, and uh, the U.S., the U.K., several other European powers, Japan, all all tried to put an end to the, the then nascent Soviet Union by invading the country that lasted for a, a little over over a year before um, it was completely abandoned and quietly uh, mostly forgotten in, in Western uh, history. Um, but uh, there were um, other further uh, such episodes uh, during the Cold War. Um, uh, you know, we have uh, received uh, unclass uh, unclassified documents, be the Freedom of Information Act, to show that the CIA not only sparked but actually led on the ground in insurgency uh, from West Ukraine in the 1950s in an act that was probably pretty significant in really sparking off the Cold War um, and has – Definite historical and geographic repercussions for what uh, you know we are seeing with the larger uh, geopolitical context of the conflict uh, over Ukraine between the West and Russia today. Um, we've heard rhetoric coming out of uh, both Washington and European capitals talking that um, Russia must be defeated. Russia must be humiliated. This man cannot stay in office. This man must go. And we have seen, uh, uh, you know, high-placed uh, D.C. Um, uh, foreign policy and geopolitical think tanks openly holding discussions, uh, you know, with U.S. government officials uh, attend uh, in large numbers about splitting up Russia, about the decolonization of Russia. This is something that is actively talked about by the blob, you know, by the, the foreign policy um, uh, uh, elite community in the United States, as Ben, Ro ben Rhodes called it, today. Right. I mean, this is this is uh, the fact that the Western mainstream media at the same time as they have acknowledged it out the other side when it's inconvenient. They they they, you know, oh, Putin's just paranoid is, you know, that's the the, the part of the propaganda war in the 15 minute memory of the Western mainstream media. Mm. So because of that, now Putin has said, I consider it necessary to support the proposal of the Ministry of Defense and the general staff on conducting partial mobilization in Russia. What does that mean, Mark, partial mobilization? OK, so, I mean, the biggest component of it is that um, Russia, first of all, Russia has limited their intervention in Ukraine from February until now under their own 
self-limitation, their legal definition of it as a special military operation to only around 150,000 troops, right, out of a one million man uh, active duty military and two million reserves. So, you know, less than 10 percent or well, around just over 10 percent of their active duty military capability. And that was done, I believe, as a signal to the West that their aims in Ukraine were limited. They were always willing to go back to the negotiation table on the terms they set out uh, late last year uh, to guarantee their their, uh, their the Russia's own national interests and security, um, and uh, probably to also uh, not be seen as escalating to the point where NATO themselves might also send an incursion into West Ukraine, and that could potentially lead to a, a uh, World War III type scenario where Russia and NATO were actively fighting within Ukraine. I, I think that was the reason. But at this point, I think it's recognized uh, generally by the Russian government and the Russian society that, uh, that this isn't just a war with a regime that seized power in Kiev with Western backing anymore. This is a total war uh, with NATO. Uh, the, the first Ukrainian ar army that they began this conflict with that had received help from NATO has largely been destroyed, as the Russian uh, defense minister pointed out. But during the course, an entire new Ukrainian military has been constructed with NATO funding, NATO arming, NATO training, NATO intelligence. Washington Post uh, admitted as a CIA and European commandos directing troops on the battlefield, satellite in from real time satellite information, everything in every way. Uh, this the military that Russia is facing now is a a proxy force and quote unquote, Ukrainian in name only. Um, so um, by expanding, by declaring the mobilization, Russia is recognizing that they are in effect at war with NATO. Uh, and as such, it is an existential threat. This will call up some 300,000 reserves out of Russia's 2 million uh, um, uh, active reserve roster troops uh, beyond the, the, the million man uh, active duty military. And uh, a, a big part of this will be special uh, people with who you know recently got out of the military who have special military experience uh, that are actively needed artillery and medics I know is one of the foremost among them a good part of the rest will basically be on guarding the borders uh, and garrison duty freeing up the uh, professional contract military for continuing offensive operations uh, that they've been engaged in kind of single-mindedly uh, in liberating uh, the rest of the Donbass, uh, chewing through extensive uh, Kiev regime uh, fortifications that were built up there over years. Um, other things that have gone into effect are a stop-loss uh, mechanism, much like uh, the U.S. has put into effect uh, in Iraq and elsewhere, where uh, active duty military, when their contracts expire, uh, that uh, they're held on, that the contracts are automatically extended. So it, it that itself is a type of um, 
uh, mobilization of, of people who would have otherwise gotten out of the military. But it, it's it's kind of normal for uh, countries uh, engaged in conflicts. The U.S. Uh, has done such measures as well. They've also now uh, announced that uh, foreigners will be able to uh, fight for Russia. Um, and they have announced a new easier procedure um, where uh, people who serve one year in the military uh, Russian military uh, in uh, you know the time of this conflict will uh, automatically receive Russian citizenship, and this is particularly targeted at citizens of the former Soviet Union who are Russian speaking and 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 so on. Those are some of the requirements, um, and um, there actually are large numbers of people from the former Soviet Union that are always uh, trying to get Russian citizenship. Uh, so uh, this might be a route that many of them will see as, uh, you know, easier and acceptable. You know, this sounds very different from the conscription that uh, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky uh, announced uh, in Ukraine that was not covered by U.S. media at all, where uh, Ukrainian citizens were actually denied uh, the ability to leave the country. And yeah. Ukrainian civilians, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, were conscripted into the Ukrainian army, Mark. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, the uh, no males between the ages of 16 and 60 are legally allowed to leave the country. They have to bribe to get their way out. Uh, and this has been since uh, February. Um, uh, now, there there are large numbers of, of volunteers. Then they have the territorial defense, which uh, uh, they were promised that they would be able to stay home, defend their home territories and receive big pay, particularly when the economy is so terrible. Uh, of, of course, that was a lie, and they were often sent into the front in the meat grinder. And then there is waves of forced conscription as well. And uh, it has to be said that uh, certain women with certain skills are being called up as well as men. Uh, so it, it's not entirely gender restricted on, on that regard, if if that's considered progressive, I don't know. Uh, but this type of, of forced conscription of an entire nation is quite very different from what Russia is doing, calling up a, a small portion of their reserves roster. And in the last couple of minutes we have left, Mark, I want to ask about the uh, referendums that are being called that are already being denounced as illegitimate by the West in the uh, Donbass, Kherson and Zafrozit, uh, uh, Zafrozaya. I, th I hope I pronounced that correctly. Kherson, uh, uh, Zaporozhye and the Donetsk and Lugansk republics. Thank yes. you. Yes. So the, what What about the referendums? How critical to this uh, military, this partial uh, mobilization are the referendums from these republics and defending these republics? Uh, how critical uh, are these referendums to Russia? Well, after the example of Kharkov and the filtration and cleansing that, that the Kiev regime is going through there with anyone who so much as took humanitarian aid from Russia, there is a definite fear effect. It didn't quite work the way Kiev wanted it to, I don't think. People are desperate to get the protection of Russia as the Russian Federation so that they cannot, for strategic reasons, you know, be um, uh, have, have Russian troops withdrawn from their territory. And, and this 
this will see that territory if they uh, vote for uh, joining the Russian Federation just as much as it would the rest of Russia. So uh, making it uh, an absolute with the entire force of the Russian military uh, active duty, the reserves being called up, used to defend those territories. Um, and um, it will, again, free up more of the uh, professional contract military for offensive operations. It is a game changer. It is a huge game changer. And I think both Kiev and its Western patrons are desperate uh, and in their outrage about this. Um, the outrage, I mean, they're, they're decrying, oh, referendums in, in the course of a conflict when all the territory is not necessarily controlled. Isn't that the way sham elections were held in Ukraine <laughs> over the last uh, eight years since the push in in uh, 2014 when they were still trying to subjugate the east of their country under active shelling and Azov neo-Nazi jackboot uh, you know, literally under the barrel of a gun. Well, that's just a little bit of a hypocrisy on, on the West part. And I think all of the listeners of Sputnik and the people in the rest of the world are uh, intelligent enough to see that hypocrisy. We certainly hope so. And this will definitely be ongoing coverage as we watch this uh, unfold in uh, Ukraine. I want to thank Mark Sloboda so much for joining us today. We'll be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about some protests in Iran after a young woman's death in police custody there and an update on the Iran nuclear deal. And I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Sayed Mohammed Morandi, professor of English literature and Orientalism at the University of Tehran. Dr. Morandi, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much for inviting me. Very glad to have you because this is very interesting news and, and it's turned quite tragic. There was a uh, a young woman who died in police custody in Iran, uh, Masha Amini, and there have been protests in response to her death in police custody. And now those protests have turned deadly. So what has uh, transpired uh, between the police and the protesters uh, in Iran? Initially, the news came out that she was she 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 died in custody, and then there was a lot of talk, especially on um, Western-owned Persian language media like BBC Persian, VOA Persian, Deutsche Welle Persian, Saudi uh, Iran International, which is a Saudi TV channel, and um, and online media outlets were saying that she was tortured and beaten to death. And so this caused a lot of uh, anger and concern among many in Iran. But then footage came out showing her after she was taken in because of um, what you would let's say um, I don't know what it's called in English, but it's a it's a it's a it's a police force that enforces let's say uh, a, a dress code, 
So she was sort of like, uh, according to an Iranian law, it was indecent exposure, let's ah. say, mm -hmm. something like that. And then, so when they, but the footage that came out when she left the police van showed her to be fine. It didn't reveal any, uh, it didn't reveal her to be any, in any pain. And then when she went inside a building, uh, where they have a class. It's sort of like they have a two-hour class or something, uh, something like in, let's say, when in Iran, someone, a, a, a traffic cop takes away your driver's license for whatever reason, then you have to go uh, for like a couple of hours for a, a driving course again to, sure. to be able to get your driver's license once again. So, of course, and by the way, when I say indecent exposure, obviously it means a very different thing in Iran than, it, than what it means in the United States, because in Iran, uh, people uh, dress more conservatively. Mm -hmm. uh, but in any case, so the footage doesn't show. So in when she was in the building waiting for her class or whatever it was, uh, it shows her talking to someone and then suddenly collapsing. So there's no evidence uh, of her being beaten or tortured uh, during this process. So some people continue to believe that she was beaten and tortured. Um, um, others don't believe it. It's, it's debated. Her, a physician who uh, said that he operated on her uh, brain when she was eight said she had problems that could potentially lead to death. And doctors who... Uh, looked at her pictures of her autopsy uh, of, 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 I think, a, a brain scan of sorts. They said they couldn't find any evidence of something hard hitting her head. But then again, those who claim that she was violently killed, uh, they're, they're saying that this is all nonsense and, and fabricated. For me, I don't see any evidence that she was um, physically abused. But this is, but that doesn't mean that that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, you know, it's just so far I haven't seen anything to show that's happened. But in any case, it did lead to um, protests, uh, sporadic protests in different uh, parts of the country, and they gradually became more militant and violent. So last night, for example, a police officer was set on fire by these rioters or women who were wearing the hijab, their scarves and their clothing were ripped away from them. At least there's uh, one uh, documented in instance of that and there are others who've complained about it. So, but it's, the, the, the protests or the, the riots aren't very large in number, but the protests or the riots are being actively supported by BBC Persian, VOA Persian, Deutsche Welle Persian, uh, Iran International, which is a Saudi TV uh, outlet, and, and, an, and an online army of the MEK, which is based in Albania. They're supported by big tech, and they, uh, they have thousands of people who work 24 hours a day, effectively, um, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and, and Telegram, and elsewhere. So there's a there's a, a huge media uh, warfare uh, campaign going on 
as we speak, but it seems like the riots are and protests are dying down. So in some cases, they're protests. In some cases, they're riots. Mm. So, th- I mean, this is a case where uh, a young woman actually, by all accounts, uh, because her own family has explicitly denied uh, claims that uh, Tehran's police chief, um, uh, that that the Tehran police department had beaten her. Uh, her family says that she had several pre-existing conditions like epilepsy and diabetes. Uh, so this is a case where this woman, even though she died in uh, technically in the custody of the police, it was not because of police brutality, but the anti-government uh, forces seem to have taken the opportunity to take advantage of the protests uh, that have arisen when people thought this was the case. Is that what's really going on here, uh, Dr. Morandi? Yes, I'm, I'm not quite sure what her family says because there have been um, different reports uh, about about what they said, but the evidence so far, the the footage, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the the physician who operated on her, the physicians who looked at her, uh, the the scan, uh, they uh, basically are saying that nothing violent happened to her. But uh, but yes, as you point out, the those who uh, are still claiming that she was. Uh, tortured and beaten to death, uh, they are they are on the streets. Some of them, as I said, are they're, they're protesting, and some of them are are violent. Now, again, the evidence doesn't show that she was beaten or tortured, but uh, th- I haven't seen everything, so I can't say for certain. But it doesn't seem to be the case, at least from my understanding. Certainly. But, you know, Tehran's governor, uh, Moshin Mansouri, said on Tuesday that foreign nationals had been among the people who have been arrested in the uh, protests or riots. And he tweeted uh, that according to exact reports by responsible entities in Tehran's recent issues, the footprints of intervention by some embassies and foreign services can clearly be seen. Do you get that sense that there are uh, foreign entities that are using this very unfortunate and tragic incident to uh, do what has been attempted to be done in Iran for decades to uh, destabilize and overturn uh, uh, the government using the discontent of the people in the streets. Well, I wasn't following on the, uh, following up on this particular news story very carefully, but my understanding was that the people arrested were dual nationals who were working with three Western embassies. Uh, that that's as far as I understand. But since I wasn't following up on it carefully, I may not be correct. But when we look at the act, the uh, the activities of BBC Persian and VOA Persian and Deutsche Welle Persian and, and other media outlets like Manato, all of all of which are funded by the West or owned by the West or by allies of the West, like so uh, like Iran International, which is uh, uh, again, as I said, a Saudi. Uh, media outlet, and and all the other online. Uh, so you, for example, you have, and this is something that I've experienced personally. When I tweet, uh, because I, uh, Facebook has removed my account, and Instagram has also removed my account. So all I have is Twitter now. But when I tweet, 
I often get these uh, people who uh, write something against me. And then when I look at them, it's very similar to the others, but they use different names. So they, they have similar likes, they have similar comments. Uh, they're either bots or they are individuals who have multiple accounts. So you have this huge cyber army uh, that is that's, that is deployed in Albania. And as I said, big tech is behind them because otherwise if it was any, if it was based in Iran or somewhere, somewhere else, um, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram would shut them down immediately. But uh, it, it, this psychological warfare is taking place. So for me, it is not strange that people affiliated to Western embassies would be involved in some way or form. Mm. And switching gears just a bit with the last few minutes we have, what is the update on the Iran nuclear deal? There still has not been any uh, announcement or proclamation from the Biden administration. I don't think he said anything about it, but there have been negotiations that have continued. And what is the view on the prospects of the uh, nuclear deal uh, going forward from Iran's point of view? Well, as I'm sure you know, President Raisi, the Iranian president, is in New York for the UN General Assembly. Interestingly, he took with uh, he took Dr. Bagheri with him. Dr. Bagheri being the chief Iranian nuclear negotiator. And in New York, he met Mr. Mura, the EU representative, at the negotiations. So it is clear that that talks are taking place. Uh, but whether they will lead to a breakthrough or not, it really depends on the United States. The United States has been, in the eyes of Iran, stonewalling over the last few weeks. And the belief in Tehran is it has more to do with elections, the November elections in the United States, and possibly the, uh, the Israeli regime elections that I think take place a week before the elections in, in the United States. But still, these negotiations are taking place. The Iranian head of the, the Iran's head of the its um, nuclear program uh, has also said that he has been receiving some positive signs that the IAEA wants to solve the case. Again, that's very vague to me. I don't know what that means exactly, but it could. These could be positive signs, potentially. But it's too early to say if anything will come out of it, because if the United States is concerned about the November elections, then I don't know. I'm not quite sure what the negotiations in New York uh, could possibly lead to. But then again, maybe the Americans and again, I'm just speculating here. It's just full, complete speculation. Maybe the Americans want to solve things for after November. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. And that, I think, is the ultimate answer in regard to the Iran nuclear deal. No one knows what the United States is going to do because the United States clearly, uh, the Biden administration clearly seems to not have made this a priority. So we're still in a we shall see situation. But I want to thank Dr. Mohammed Morandi so much for joining me for this segment. We're out of time, but we will be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So Please stay with us. By any means necessary.
Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about how news outlets PBS and BBC are spreading information about Brazil and Bolsonaro in Brazil. And I'm happy to be joined by Brian Meir, co-editor of Brazil Wire and author of Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street and the New Imperialism in Brazil. Brian, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Jackie. Really glad to have you on. So it appears that uh, according to this uh, article in Affair, uh, that you uh, wrote, where you point out that PBS and BBC are teaming up to misinform about Brazil's Bolsonaro, that the U.S. and British governments uh, that supported the rise of Brazil's far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro, are continuing to spread misinformation about uh, his reign uh, while they're feigning ob- objectivity. So how are they doing this? I know this might confuse a lot of people who've seen all of these articles over the last three years portraying Bolsonaro as this kind of like evil clown character. I mean, he was used as a punching bag on COVID-19 in venues like New York Times and Washington Post and Guardian for basically just copying Donald Trump and Boris Johnson, you know, maybe a little bit worse in some areas, but not no significant difference, really. You know, I mean, he was copying the same talking points of Trump the whole time. But but in this case, you know, it's election month. And the fact that they're releasing this at this moment is really telling. It's showing that it's an attempt to possibly influence the elections because there's this huge echo chamber uh, where anything that gets published about Brazil in the media in the United States or in the UK uh, gets reported on back in Brazil, and you know pieces of it are are chopped and subtitled and put on um, on the social media and things like that. So it will have an effect on the elections if it were released in Portuguese in Brazil. And this is why BBC Brazil isn't releasing it. It would be uh, illegal. It would be um, guilty of election fraud. And the reason for that is the bias. And and I'll give you an example. There's over 20 interviewees. Um, Among the interviewees, around around nine elected officials are interviewed, right? Of these nine, most of them are far-right elected officials, not just conservatives, but like right-wing extremists. Some of them, like Bia Kisis, who's one of Bolsonaro's staunchest allies, is just introduced on camera as an anti-corruption crusade, you know? Um, And they only talk to one person from the Workers' Party, which is by far the largest left-wing party in Brazil. It's Lula's party, the party of the candidate who's leading Bolsonaro in the polls. They have the second highest number of people in Congress right now. And they, they just interview one person from the Workers' Party for 30 seconds to ask a really uncomfortable question, like, how did you feel when Bolsonaro um, said you weren't uh, pretty enough to rape on the floor of Congress? You know, like, that's the only participation from the Workers' Party. So that would make it illegal to release in Brazil wow. at this moment, you know, at the moment it's being released, even though they know it's going to have repercussions in Brazil. 
And so, you know, during the rise of uh, Bolsonaro's uh, opening montage in in one of the interviews, a footage of a burning rainforest appeared on the screen. And uh, this uh, one journalist, uh, Winter, I guess, who was the vice president of policy at America Society Council of the Americas, which is actually a think tank founded by David Rockefeller in 1963. So, yeah, they're they're not unbiased at all. Uh, Winter said. Jair Bolsonaro believes that the Brazilian Amazon is the magical path to economic prosperity. There was no mention in this coverage of Winter's role in this organization, the ASCOA, and the uh, agribusiness giant Cargill that is responsible uh, basically for a lot of the deforestation and their uh, profiting from uh, the destruction of the Amazon rainforest. How Prominent does this issue of the destruction of the rainforest uh, play in the coverage that is uh, very slanted toward making excuses for it uh, in these outlets like PBS and the BBC in Brazil? Well, it's like, I mean, they could have talked about dozens of policy issues of uh, that Bolsonaro did that were all horrible, Right. Like, he tried to outlaw teaching of sociology and philosophy in universities and high schools, right? He eliminated the the Ministry of Human Rights. You know, uh, he did all kinds of, he tried, you know, he he raised the retirement age and plunged um, 30 million people into absolute poverty, you know? Hunger has now reached the highest levels it's been in Brazil since the 1990s. They could have touched on all kinds of different policy issues, right? But they chose this one, the Amazon deforestation, because it seems to be the one area where the hegemic media can assume kind of a left posture, right? To, to, to talk about env- the environment. Um, you, can, you can work for The Guardian and say that you're an environmentalist and this and that. So they, they use the environment as the one the environment and the indigenous issues is like the one area of criticism of him, really, in the whole three-hour project. And they only get in, the doc is like three hours long, so they only get into it in any depth three-quarters of the way into the film. For the first three-quarters, it's just this fluff, glossing over all of his life, making it look like he's just someone with anger management issues, you know? So uh, whitewashing his past and you know, attributing the fact that he was a congressman for 26 years and only passed two laws to that he felt like an outsider, all of this nonsense, right? Uh, But every time they bring up the Amazon, uh, the deforestation, there's immediately like two commentators who appear glossing over whitewashing. No, he doesn't, he's not worried about destroying the rainforest. He just cares about economic development, you know? Bolsonaro has been trying to develop the Amazon economically. He's not he's not torching it. He's not like creating uh, ecocide and wiping out completely wiping out, you know, indigenous tribes off the face of the earth. He's just worried about the economy. And so at one point, the one indigenous person who they interview, uh, I I can't uh, her name. I escapes me. Mayara. Uh, something from this tribe. I, I, if I had the article in front of me, I could give her last name. But anyway, she says, uh, talks about how her tribe has suffered violence and, that she attributes directly to Bolsonaro. And then they have Bolsonaro's MAME designer come on and say, 
Well, you know, most Indians, they don't want to walk around naked the rest of their lives. They want land to plant on, as if they were in favor of ripping down the forests on their reservations. <laughs> so it's just like, it, it's one thing after another. I, I was so angry trying to write about this. I had to leave out huge chunks of horribleness just to fit it within Fair's space limit. Another thing is they pretend that Brazilians have a constitutional right to bear arms, which they don't, mm. because Bolsonaro's cushy relationship with the NRA and, you know, and the international gun industry. They act like Brazilians really care about the right to bear arms. It's not a right in Brazil. Wow. Just go, the list of things just goes on and on and on. It's just outrageous. I mean, it really is. Reading this article is really just like this is an amazing, uh, um, uh, not even an attempt, an amazing operation to whitewash the entire uh, reality of who Jair Bolsonaro is and not just his his political legacy, but also even his early years. There's even a whitewash of his early years where uh, his his uh, um, his life is framed as some ra- uh, rags to riches story of rugged individualism. But, but I mean, what, what are they whitewashing about Bolsonaro that they had to make that up, Brian? Well, it's just because, like Tucker Carlson, when he came down here and ran one week of propaganda for Bolsonaro every night on, on his show, and now he's got this documentary coming out tomorrow about Brazil and China, which is, looks absurd. They're trying, and Brian Winter from America's Quarterly uh, as COA, you know, he's he's been involved in this project from day one. I mean, this the influence of this organization cannot be underrated, under, uh, under uh, I don't know, it can't be underestimated. Down. This yeah. is like one of the biggest or um, lobbying groups for Latin America in the world. I mean, they, if you look at their corporate membership, it's all of the petroleum companies, all of the mining companies, all of the agribusiness companies that are directly benefiting from Amazonian deforestation. They cheerled for the coup in Bolivia. They are uh, they spread massive amounts of disinformation about Venezuela. You know, they were directly involved. Seymour Hirsch, the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, wrote an article about their involvement in the coup in Chile in 1973 for Rolling Stone in the 70s. I mean, these guys Go back. If you go back to the early 60s, they're involved in almost every right wing coup that's ever happened in Latin America from that date. So they've been trying to paint Bolsonaro as someone who grew up in this kind of like Wild West atmosphere, groveling in poverty, you know, and that, that's why he cares about violence issues, because, you know, he was afraid of violence when he was a little kid. So they 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 say that he grew up in in the documentary. They say he grew up in the badlands of Brazil. You know, and really, he grew up in a lower middle class household. His father was a dentist and, uh, you know, his father had some problems, legal issues, and they moved to this little town. He lived the first 11 years of his life in a city roughly the size of Seattle, Campinas, 3.7 million people or whatever. And then they moved to this little town. But it's um, but it's a town in the richest state of of Brazil. It would be like, OK, like um so call, saying that someone, an American politician, grew up in the badlands of the United States because he grew up in upstate New York. <laughs> That's basically what they say about Bolsonaro. Whereas in reality, Lula, you know, lived the first years of his life in a mud house with no running water or electricity with six brothers and sisters. 
in an area with massive drought and they had to flee starvation on a 14-day truck ride down to Sao Paulo when he was like eight years old. I mean, his the poverty that he came out of is just crippling. Uh, you know, he's, he's, he suffered a lot of hunger when he was growing up and uh, actually is from a really poor background. You know, so the, there's a different, I mean, he started shining shoes when he was nine. Wow. You know, so, and working in a factory when he was 14. And, you know, Bolsonaro, I was in Bolsonaro's hometown reporting uh, a couple of years ago for Telesur, and people told me he was one of the only teenagers in that town who had a motorcycle, for example. <laughs> so he wasn't exactly groveling in poverty. Yeah, not a rags to riches story at all uh, about Jair Bolsonaro. But, you know, of course, I don't think we should expect uh, PBS and BBC to air uh, a documentary about uh, uh, Lula's life, certainly not on the scale of the misinformation that they have with this rise of the Bolsonaros that they have produced. And and we hope that they don't take on uh, Lula's life with the same pattern that they have with this documentary. But we'll see how this plays out in the upcoming elections. We're out of time for this segment. Want to thank Brian Mir so much for joining me. We'll be back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, friends. Welcome back. We have returned. It is Wednesday, September 21, 2020. And in 20 minutes, as we always do, we'll be opening the phone lines to you to give us a call and ask us about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all or anything that's on your mind. But that is not the only way for our allies, accomplices and comrades. That's y'all to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time. Of course, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in By Any Means Necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we're streaming for your viewing pleasure live on Rumble right now. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. And at the top of the hour, speaking of shaping the economic movements that uh, talking about the economic movements that shape the world around us, the Federal Reserve 
has raised interest rates yet again by 0.75 percentage point, 8.75 percentage point uh, point for the third straight meeting. The Federal Reserve approved its third consecutive interest rate rise of 0.75 percentage point and signaled additional increases, large increases, were likely at coming meetings as it combats, they claim, they're combating inflation that remain at a near 40-year high. Officials' new projections showed a majority of the 19 officials who participated at the Fed's policy meeting were in approval of this interest rate hike, and they expect to lift the rate at least by another 1.25 percentage points by December to a range of between 4.25% and 4.5%. Five percent. The Fed has two more meetings this year. This is important. We keep talking about this because Wednesday's projections showed that most officials expect higher unemployment over the next year, implying rising recession risks. They know that these interest rate hikes will increase unemployment and they don't care. The median projection showed officials expect the unemployment rate, rate which stood at 3.7% in August, could rise to 4.4% at the end of 2023. And we know that for black people and uh, the working poor, that number is actually double the quote unquote official uh, unemployment rate. So There you go. Our Federal Reserve hard at work sacrificing the working class and the poor uh, in their fake fight against inflation. But be that as it may, I am happy to be joined for this hour by Netva Freeman, my comrade and friend who is coordinating committee member with the Black Alliance for Peace, organizer with Pan-African Community Action, and host of Voices with Vision on WPFW 89.3 FM on your radio dial here in Washington, D.C. Netfa, thank you for joining me. Hey, Jackie, good to hear your voice. Good to be heard. That is not an understatement at this point. And... And, you know, Netva, aside from the Federal Reserve uh, basically planning to to put a whole lot of our folks uh, out of work in, in their little fake fight against inflation and, and, you know, completely happy and content to do that. There are other things that are going on in the world uh, that namely the Biden administration's forever wars policy and the fact that, you know, for as much as Biden has campaigned on being, you know, the anti-Trump and 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 the the guy that that people needed to vote for to uh uh combat fascism cuz that was the line, right? Joe Biden has continued the warmongering of the United States and not only has continued the warmongering. I think I got to say Netfa, particularly on today as Russia has declared a partial mobilization in their war now against NATO, because that's that's what this is. This is this is no longer the U.S. EU NATO proxy war. You, this this is this is NATO's war against Russia. And uh, uh, Russia's response today is a reflection of that. But the fact that Biden has billed himself as you know, what what we needed to to vote for or who we needed to vote for to stop fascism in the United States. And the Biden administration has wholeheartedly embraced 
a whole fascist administration in Ukraine with banning political parties, banning books in Russian, banning speaking Russian, uh, the Russian language, all that kind of stuff. Neo-Nazis in the army, all that kind of stuff. Completely washed, uh, whitewashed in, in corporate media. Uh, you know, it, I think it is more pressing than ever for anti-imperialists to raise the issue of America's forever wars that are continuing under the Biden administration. And he's doing it under the guise of combating fascism, but they're actually embracing and furthering fascism around the world. And, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that in the, in the broad scheme of how we need to be organizing to address this issue. Mm-hmm. That's a big question. You know, I'm always asking big ones. And it's, I mean, it's not that I don't have thoughts. I got anything, but it's, it's very um, involved. Uh, and I think your analysis is spot on. I think we do as well to understand the different facets facets of fascism mm-hmm. and what it entails. And the U.S. and the the U.S. EU NATO axis of domination and its pursuit. It's, it's a complete commitment to upholding a neoliberal order is taking on all of the facets of fascism on a global scale. Uh, and then so what the, and part of that, part of the facets of fascism is duping the people, is dominating the media, is saturating it with messaging. And in this case, in this case, the irony is it's dominating it with messaging about fascism <laughs> and then misusing the terms and applying them and, and or I won't say misusing them, well, I guess I will say misusing, they're misusing the term, but some people uh, who are taking on this media or consuming it are not necessarily misusing it, might have a clearer understanding of it, but still not dealing with it, and it's totalitarian, and as a result, becoming susceptible, susceptible to the messaging that the Democratic Party in particular, that one side of the ruling class, and wants, wants people to have, for example, reducing fascism to the stuff like, you know, what Donald Trump was doing and, and the people that were still in the White House and these kind of more overt, uh, you know, type of things. Um, or, or I won't say overt, yeah, I guess overt in terms of their expression. But fascism is also the military and police domination, which right now the power the state has that in the U.S., in the, in the U.S. domestically. It's the ones exercising still the continued uh, racist brutality against us, the mass incarceration, the implementation of criminalizing things as a re- that really should, are just people trying to survive. And then on the global level, because that's the part that really is significant to what you laid out, is implementing uh, military dominance and passing legislation, like, for example, uh, when it comes to Africa, the malign, countering the malign activities the malign Russian activities in Africa Act, which is the legislation that they haven't passed it yet, but they're trying to pass that, and where where it's actually dictating the terms of uh, engagement or trade, international trade to African countries, who they can can and cannot uh, trade with or have bilateral relations, bilateral relationships with, and that's what that legislation is designed to do. The legislation itself. Is a violation, really, of the United the Charter of the United Nations, and the, the, the guarantees, or yeah, guarantees the sovereignty 
of countries. Um, we see it with their Cuba policy, you know, the, the continued blockade and disregard for international law regarding that, and then even insisting or, or upholding that Cuba be on the list of state sponsors of terrorism, when in fact the whole hypocrisy has been that Cuba was has been subjected to decades of terrorism that are orchestrated from the shores of the United States. That's what gave a rise to the case of the Cuban Five that has tried to find Cuba trying to find ways to to combat that terrorism. Um, and so, I mean, and then, like you said, the support for uh, the government in Ukraine this to in order to uh, stand up against you know Russia and it's a pursuit against Russia. It cares nothing about Ukrainian people and people you know hold on to that. It does cares nothing about any people anywhere and doesn't care about any freedom, democracy in Ukraine or or any you know, so-called uh, Russia's uh, plans to to take over um, that country or you know that that territory. It doesn't. Those aren't what's happening. And so the thing that we have to do, you know, was was kind of the, at the bottom of your question is one we have to be able to unpack the um, the spin that they give and then also bring focus back on the measures and the, the policies of full-spectrum full dominance that the United States engages in. And it's not just about uh, Ukraine either, you know, and Russia, rather. It's also about how they're dealing with the whole world. Libya is in turmoil. The messaging there, and they keep it in turmoil right now. It's in turmoil as a result of their 2011 um, invasion and decimation of that country, and it's still in turmoil. And right now, the media, and we don't hear a lot about Libya, but what we do hear is that they're trying to combat the damage that Russia has done in Libya. I mean, so they really turn reality on its head, and they use and just what fascism and the rhetoric of fascism does is talk about freedoms and liberties and things like that, you know. Uh, but in fact, it's taking those things away from. Uh, vast numbers of people domestically and internationally. Yeah. And, you know, you raised a couple of points that I do want to touch on. And that is, you know, this issue with U.S. legislators, excuse me, pushing this countering malign Russian activities in Africa Act. And, you know, to be clear for folks who are not aware, this is not, you know, just the the conservative neocons. This is not, you know, the folks in the Republican Party who are pushing this piece of legislation. It's the uh, members of the Congressional Black Caucus who are pushing uh, pushing this legislation. They have actually uh, uh, co-sponsored this bill. I think it was uh, uh, Representative Meeks from New York, uh, the Democratic representative from New York, that, as you said, Netfa, just violates uh, all kinds of agreements and takes away the right to self-determination from African people. And, and I cannot overstate that it is black politicians doing this to African people, um, all under the guise of combating uh, Russia. And, and so this raises the issue of AFRICOM and how our legislatures, no, not our legislatures, how the legislators in the United States uh, use AFRICOM and have expanded it to do exactly what, what we just pointed out, to, to deny the right of self-determination of the people across the continent, all under the guise of, you know, fighting terrorism, because that's, that's the spin. But really, it just 
continues to create chaos uh, and and who that ultimately benefits, Netva. Mm-hmm. And we should see the we should look at and consider these, you know, the people, these, you know, I don't know, the people in the Congressional Black Caucus or just the, the, the black legislators of the U.S. in the Congress. And that is really a comparable class. And we tend to use that term compradors when we're talking about, particularly in Africa, I actually don't really hear it uh, applied more, but it's in general, it has a universal application, talking about a class of folks who, who really don't, who are rep, supposed to represent a people, but actually operate uh, for the interests of some other people. They're the, the elite of a class that operate and basically betraying the people. And so when we see those who are in like Meeks and all the rest of them who support this Milan activities in Russia or any other kind support AFRICOM, the U.S. Africa command there in Africa, we should see them as comparable to the comparable class or the elite class on the African continent. We got to look at the class struggle of it. And so a lot of times people just dismiss the, oh, the, 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 the autocrats and, and the, and the comparators in Africa but they don't see the people in the, you know, the, the ones in the U.S. government as being really the counterparts. They're just counterparts of the same thing. And so we miss it and we think we're just appealing to them, but then they have more disdain for the ones on the African continent. We need to develop a disdain for all of them. And that when we look at AFRICOM, the U.S. Africa Command, despite all its rhetoric of trying to, you know, supposed to be fighting terrorism, combating, you know, war on terror and fighting things like Al-Shabaab and, and Boko Haram and these kind of things, trying to supposedly destabilizing Africa, it is doing the opposite. This October 1st will mark the 14th anniversary of the establishment, the official establishment of AFRICOM. And since that time, since AFRICOM, there has been increased activity uh, uh, of terror or extreme terrorist violence on the continent of Africa, and all not to mention the violence, it's the, the state that the U.S. Uh, operations level against the people on the African continent themselves. There's drone wars in Somalia. We talked about Libya in 2011. That was the first operation of AFRICOM. The NATO and, and seeing AFRICOM and, and the U.S. is, or NATO really, basically it's part of the U.S. I know people think of it the other way around, but NATO is an extension of U.S. military policy. And that uh, Libya has seen no, uh, has, has seen no peace or anything but comparable to redress since then. And it has caused destabilization across the Sahel and across the continent, most of the Sahel and Africa, the, the Libya situation. And so they've exacerbated things. that has been an increase even ever since 2011. And then you also have an increase of AFRICOM-trained uh, soldiers uh, orchestrating coup d'etats, particularly in West Africa. And so what is this? Where's the stability? And as the U.S. and the, those who you know look at AFRICOM and make it seem like that it's an indispensable part of pre, uh, stabilization on the African continent, they never speak or give any inclination that there's any end to this. That's why we call it the forever war. It falls into that category of the forever wars. And, they have, and people don't even think of them as wars, but that's what it is. And we should be clear. It's not, we're not talking about a war, just the war between the uh, the uh, African government and the U.S. against some, you know, this terrorist threat. We really should be talking about the war that the global elite is waging against all of us, and that it's having this very complicated 
uh, situation. This also, and I'll just the last comment, is that this and its neoliberal, you know, nature, essence, is resulting in a, I don't even know if you call it a byproduct, uh, it's a, but it's a boom for the so-called defense industries. And we should see them as so-called. They're not really defense industries. They're offense industries. And on the 2021 report from Brown University's Cost of War Project, they exposed, revealed that one-third to one-half of all Pentagon contracts since 9-11 since I'm, have gone to five transnational corporate weapons corporations, Lockheed Martin and you know, the non, the usual suspects, Boeing, General Dynamics, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, and 20, from 21, from 22 of 2001 to 2020, these five companies have earned $2.1 trillion from the Pentagon contract. That's U.S. government, uh, U.S. taxpaying money being shoveled into so-called defense, you know, Spending and it's not defense spending; it's offense spending because they create the situations like the situation in in, uh, in Somalia too was created. The rise of uh, Al Shabaab is not uh, is because of U.S. calling themselves the solution to it. And I just wanted to, this is also why, and this is where we need to introduce that the Black Alliance for Peace has launched, um, and we this is our third time doing it. A month of action, October, a month of action against an international month of action against Africa, where we're using it as an opportunity to raise awareness of the people you know in the around the world about the real, about really what Africa does, you know, the brutality and the violence and the systematic degradation of Black life in the colonized zones in the United States and everywhere, and what we should we should consider. The domestic police, you know, the policy of police, domestic police, uh, is is the, what's happening with us being killed by the police and brutalized by the police and mass incarcerated, you know, is a replication in Africa of U.S. policy, the global police represented by the Pentagon and the U.S. intelligence agencies. Absolutely. I want to get into that a little bit more on the other side of this break. We will be right back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open, friends. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am Jackie Lukeman, and I continue to be joined by Netfa Freeman. And on the other side of the break, Netfa, we were talking about uh, the Black Alliance for Peace's uh, third annual um, a Month of Action Against AFRICOM. And I want to get into a little bit of the way we need to examine AFRICOM's impact, uh, certainly you know, connect the connections domestically, but in particular, the impact that AFRICOM has had on 
African people, because, you know, there is this narrative that we're trying very hard to combat. We in anti-imperialists, pan-Africanists, internationalists are trying very hard to combat that we have no connection with uh, people on the African continent. But we absolutely do. And I think that the way we see the terrorism uh, that emanates from AFRICOM being played out against the people people of Africa is one of those connections. So, so speak can speak to that a little bit. How are the African people bearing the weight of AFRICOM and the way it's used in the U.S.'s continued uh, deadly war on terror? Mm-hmm. And you know, I think it, it, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention right here that today is the first day. Mm. of Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, who was the first president of the first African president of independent state in Ghana. Um, and this would be his 113th birthday. And so and Kwame Nkrumah was also referred to as one of the foremost theoreticians and practitioners of the scientific strategy to liberate, to unite and liberate the continent of Africa, unite as, as one continent and to you know liberate continent from foreign uh, exploitation and just and, and oppression. But the, uh, one of the things, are, there's so many ways that the people on the African continent have had to bear the brunt of U.S. policy and basically the policies of Western Europe, the, the basically capitalism and neocolonialism. So neocolonialism being, you know, seen as the those pop, that uh, system that figures out, has, has adapted. It's really colonialism as an, in an adaptation where it had, to, it had to honor the independence struggles, the struggles for political independence on the African continent, that, for example, that were led or kicked off and initiated by, or not initiated, but were inspired and led in a large part to contributions like Kwame Nkrumah. And so it's neocolonialism where you have you know, the uh, indigenous leadership and, and everything, the president's back and all from your country or whatever. But at the same time, all of it has all the outward trappings, as we say, of independence. But politically and economically, you're still dominated by foreign and Western forces. And then now, what we refer to international finance capital, so we're globalization and whatnot. The people on the continent of Africa, despite the fact that the U.S. is, is not supposedly not at war with any African countries, there are 46 military bases and outposts spanning the continent of Africa. Every, whether it be a lily pad, what we call lily pad bases, or outright uh, military bases, every country on the continent of Africa, with the exception of Eritrea, has what's referred to what would be uh, an extension or an operation or or institution of AFRICOM, the U.S. Africa Command. Um, and then also we don't we don't want to forget the French military domination and whatnot. And so at, with that comes a whole host of displacing people and, you know, having and being exploited by the military, you know, the we call special forces operations there. They when they train, and this is the main thing is AFRICOM's thing is to train and employ and use the militaries of other countries. So it's not like it's a whole bunch of US uh people, citizens, boots on the ground. They have you know, commanders and, and sergeants and whatnot who are trained, people who train, the special operations forces. And when they do these these trained forces 
like, for example, in Nigeria, and Nigeria is just an example because it's not one, they'll train the militaries and the police of these countries. And they also police, there's police training. And so the NSARS, people out there heard about the NSARS, the special, the, the SARS uh, squad, special anti-robbery squad in Nigeria. And in 2020, they, there was a big protest because of their brutality against the people. These are U.S. trained forces. And so what happens is as you have what we call the comprador class upholding neocolonialism on the continent of Africa, when the people, you know, the unrest and there's a resistance, it's them that enable, it's U.S. policy and U.S. support that enables this class, that keeps them, uh, them the, uh, makes it uh, hard for people to amass any sort of opposition and and sort of a deposing of these forms. And that's why you also have why there can be um, the extremist measures. People, you know, get a certain territory and then they use some very violent extreme measures to hold that territory. Those are referred to as the terrorists. But the terrorism of the of the U.S. operations and, and the comparators that they hold up, that's not referred to as terrorism. And, and then we're not, we haven't even gone into the 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 uh, one sided if you kidding me can't even call it trade but the neo neo colonial um, economic situation that people are impoverished people it's unemployment um, there's no real ability to do, deal with the the drought and the climate uh, issues that are happening as a result of the more developed industrialized world so these are the this is what the people uh, bear the brunt on the African continent. Uh, uh, of U.S. policy in Africa and AFRICOM in particular, just AFRICOM is just, you know, it's just creating death and destruction and, and frustration. And then people, you know, you know, some people see the only way out is to join uh, an, uh, another group, an extremist group. Mm, absolutely horrendous and, and honestly criminal. Uh, behavior uh, and continued activity uh, in the war on African people through AFRICOM. But we have a caller on the line, Keith. Thanks for calling, Keith. Tell us what's on your mind. Well, my day is wonderful now that I have your voice on my radio. Oh, bless you. I would like to have him too, but hey, I'll take one instead of two. I'm still enjoying this show and uh, quite timely for your guests. I have African friends who are more or less on the elite level in their country. Their, their take on the Russia and China is we lament the old days when the British were around. We don't want the Chinese here because they're not friendly like the British and uh, we don't trust them and so on and so forth. But I can't find any evidence of any misdoing because the Chinese have forgiven debt, unlike the IMF and the World Bank. They don't have a military base with guns aimed at you, and they don't do regime change. So am I just talking to an aberration of people or with the African elite prefer to have their former colonial masters who installed the mild, mild repression and all that? Unpack that for me. Maybe I'm just talking to a microcosm rather than the reality of the African elite. Well, thanks so much, Keith, for your call and your kind words. Be very encouraged that our uh, commander in chief, uh, the host of the show, Sean Blackman, will return on tomorrow. We'll hang out for a couple of days. So don't worry, he will be back. But, uh, you know, Netfa, what what are your thoughts on Keith's call about uh, the elite, uh, some of the elite uh, on the continent? kind of pining for the days of the British Empire and being mistrustful of uh, China and Russia. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, I think he laid it out perfectly. And it is the colonial mentality. That's what compradors do. One, you're looking at, and I'm assuming, I think that he might be, uh, he's referring to people who are residing here, who are residing outside of their countries. And then they come to, to, to reside here and to also enjoy the privileges of a more of a class. You got to adopt the the thinking and whatnot of, of uh, of that of the people of the country that you're in, you know, that sort of goes with it. And uh, this country is decidedly, rapidly anti-Russia, anti-China, and so they put all kind of craziness, craziness that doesn't even make sense. Because even the caller himself acknowledge how nonsensical it sounds. They talk about the Chinese, the British were nicer to us. So wait a minute, the British, the Belgians, and all them that that was that was slavery that they imposed when they came. They were chopping off hands and. Beating people in the street. I mean, is that what's happening with China? I mean, no, no it may not be. Part, I mean, who, it doesn't even it doesn't even make any sense what they're talking about. The relationship between the Chinese and in terms of the comparison between the Chinese presence and the the British. I mean, that that shows you as the colonial mentality when people start talking about the, the the Western powers when they came to Africa treated us better. It's like that's like people here. You know, they will say it's a good thing we got put into slavery because, you know, now we have the benefit of being in the United States. And, of course, they're not talking and having been in the greatest country or whatever. Of course, these are not folks who are considering the most degradating class circumstances on the continent or here. They, they erase that from their mind. There's no consideration of what systems uh, enforce and, and, and compel, I mean, uh, keep people confined to a, to a lower class, uh, uh, you know, status and how that happens. You know, they don't really think about that. If you ask those same people what they think about the, you know, the struggling people in their country or whatever, I don't know what they, they, they would say, but someone would have some of that elite mentality stuff of putting, putting the onus on the people themselves, and they wouldn't be talking about uh, the systems and whatnot. I mean, they, I mean, I, it would be interesting to ask people, what do they think about structural adjustment programs? Because the caller did mention the, the cancellation of debt that, you know, the Chinese, China has, has given interest-free loans to African, like, was, I don't know how many African countries, and then forgave the whole loan altogether after that. When has the United States ever done anything like that? I mean, well, not just the U.S., I mean, the, or the, the West, because it's hard to talk about them just as the United States, but the United States dominates it. When has that ever, where has that happened? You know, but that was the only last four things that most, if they've ever done any kind of relief, has been the interest, which is astronomical interest, but they don't forgive that. Yeah, the the United States, the IMF, and and their allies and lackeys uh, in the West, they're not in the forgiving of debt business at all, because um, that would be bad business for them. They couldn't make the obscene profits that they make if they forgave people's debt. But I think the caller's question about the relationship that Africa has with Russia and China, or that China has and and Russia has with Africa. I think it's a really interesting question, particularly now, as, you know, people are paying more attention uh, for for other reasons, but are paying more attention to 
the things that China and Russia are doing on the continent. They are, yes, they're involved in the continent for their own reasons, for their, you know, to, to pursue their own goals in their countries. But as opposed to the way the U.S. and the West and the former colonial masters, like the British, have uh, operated on the continent I think at the very least we can say that the Russian government and the Chinese government at least pay for what they want, right? If they if they realize they need resources that exist in Africa, they don't send the military in to, quote unquote, pacify the people, to terrorize them. Uh, to, they don't depose governments and install their own puppet leaders to allow their private corporations to come into the country and steal the resources and exploit the people, these countries generally pay for what they want. And and the tension is, Netfa, that I've seen is that people in having the conversation uh, about the the relationship between Russia and China and uh, uh, countries in Africa is that they have a difficult time separating the government of Russia and China, particularly China, from private corporations that may not be uh, under any uh, 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 state control. And I think that applies more in regard to China than probably Russia, because Russia is not a socialist country. They, Russia has its it's it's a capitalist country. So Russian corporations are Russian corporations. But China is a different situation. Because the state does have a controlling interest in many corporations that operate on the continent. Um, so there, there is there. I think there is a difficulty and a tension in, in having the conversation about the relationship between these countries and how different it is from the imperialist, exploitative, uh, neo-colonial uh, relationship that the U.S. and the West has uh, on the continent of Africa. And I'm wondering what your response is to that tension. What do you say to people when when they can't quite get that there is a difference between, you know, Russian private corporations and the Russian government, Chinese private corporations and the Chinese government and how they operate on the continent? You know, I think it's a, it's a very important question, and it actually is um, should uh, allow us a, a segue into what we should be doing as a people, mm. the exigency trails, what's our way forward. And given the nature of the difference of the relationships, because I think you described it perfectly, that there are bilateral relationships, that word bilateral when it comes to uh, the U.S. is just something you say. It's not something that you actually really exist. It's unilateral. It's gangsterism. And if there's any, so because of that, that means that one of the things that have to uh, happen with us as a movement and, and a, as a black a movement that's Pan-African in nature is that we have to wage a class struggle. We have to depose, put depose and this, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to talk about the kickoff of the International Month of Action. Mm-hmm. We have uh, uh, the kickoff is a webinar on October 1st. And the title of the webinar is Colonialism, Compradors in the Militarized Capitalist Crisis in Africa. So the Compradors are in trouble and in power and any type of relationships that people think or any type of uh, treatment or or between Russia and China on the African continent that they don't think is good. And maybe if if it's not good, it's because the Compradors worked that agreement. It's not because, like you said, it's not because the gangsterism of the West. Because the West doesn't care who's in, they don't care what you, they're going to impose their will. 
you don't see that in China or Russia. And so if there's not, if, if we wage the class struggle and that we are trying to uh, build a system and a movement that is formed, a people-centered movement that's born, that's uh, born out of the, the struggles of the masses of working class masses of African people, that, that governments emerge from that movement, then whatever type of uh, relationships come out of the, uh, people-centered governments and pan-African governments are not going to be, they can't be, you know, they're going to be on the terms of the people versus the terms of the capital class. So if Russia and China doing anything that's not in the best interest of the people, it's the African leadership and compradors that are responsible for that. And so we have to, you know, that's what we have to weigh that struggle. And, and we should be, I think, see it as an advantage that they're, that that's the approach of them. And people, they can say what they want about it, but there's not gangsterism coming from there. And as, and as a fact, as a matter of fact, and that's why you know, some people will accuse me or maybe people like you or me of being favorable or praising China and Russia. Um, doesn't matter, well, you know, we're not, or taking a side rather, what is it, what they call the East and, and West type of position. Right. Looking East. We're looking forward is Kwame Nkuma and my man Kambali always quotes Kwame Nkuma said, we're not looking east, we're not looking west, we're looking forward. And if we're looking forward, then we're going to look for the most advantageous relationships and we're going to kind of disregard people who are going to dictate the terms of our existence, you know, and, we, and we're not going to listen to who they say our enemies are. That's ridiculous. You know, that's, that's colonial mentality right there, you know. And so when we get and we could negotiate from a position of strength that I, I'll dare say that I think um, those who've been you know, come from the, because Russia is not, you know, it's not socialist anymore. But as a capitalist, now a capitalist country that came, that still had to revert it backwards from a social situation, there are humanist, more humanist principles still intact there. There's still a, 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 at least something of trying to get the world to be in a better place. I would say so with China, too. So when we start saying we got to be careful, we start saying, well, you know, we're China and Russia, they're doing things on the continent, they're doing things uh, for their own interests. Well, I don't, that might be true. Every nation is going to do that. But I think there's also at least some, some elements of humanism in terms of their vision for their global vision. There's none of that in Western imperialism. Not, not at all. It does not exist. It is alien concept. They only know domination and subjugation and exploitation. Absolutely. We're going to move to another quick break here on By Any Means Necessary in Washington, D.C. So we'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are still open, friends. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Netfa Freeman. And you were talking about humanist principles that uh, even though Russia is uh, no longer uh, a socialist country, it's capitalist, they still espouse humanist principles. And, you know, the Biden administration 
is showing that they don't care about humanist principles in regard to in general, just in general, but especially in regard to its policies against Cuba. Now, uh, again, we were folks were supposed to vote for Biden to stop all of Trump's evil vileness. Well, what has Biden's response to Cuba been, Netfa, that has been any different from what the response to Cuba was under Trump or honestly under Obama and anybody before them, quite to, to be quite frank. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if you don't mind, I want to say quickly before we move a little bit more about the International Month of Action against AFRICOM and, and the fact that it's a call for people to get involved. It's not just something we're doing. Right. It's a call for people to be involved. The first week of it, is and people should go to the webpage for it, blackallianceforpeace.com slash AFRICOM2022. Blackallianceforpeace.com slash AFRICOM2022. And then what it is, the first week is the kickoff of the webinar that I mentioned on October 1st. There'll be a, a webinar um, that has uh, some speakers, mostly on the continent of Africa um, in South Africa, Chris Matalhako. I'm messing up people's names. I'm going to mess up people's names. Of the uh, South African Peace Initiative, Ezra Otieno, Revolutionary Socialist League in, in, in Kenya, uh, here and from the Pan African Newswire, Obayme Ezekwe. And then we uh, are still confirming some speakers. The BAP, uh, the moderator is the BAP Africa team, Tolome Ayuak. And that's on October 1st. And people can people can register for that. Uh, webinar. It's October 1st, 10 a.m. California time, 1 p.m. New York time, and 6 p.m. West Africa. And register at bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash AFRICOM M-O-A as a month of action. And the, the, when we have the month of that's the first week, we're going to kick it off with the webinar and then collect endorsements for the month of action. So on that, on that page, uh, blacklinesforpeace.com slash AFRICOM2022, you can go and endorse, sign up as your organization and endorse it. The second week, we're asking people to organize fill it, uh, teach-ins in wherever you are. There's toolkits on the on the page to, to tell you how to do a, tool, uh, a teach-in around AFRICOM. You need to to you know, promote and make a mass movement around AFRICOM. The third week in October, we're going to be organizing mass actions such as banner drops, for example, wherever you can, where you just create a big banner and drop it in some highly visible place or whatever kind of mass action people can come up with is, you know, it's open. The last week, we're going to share AFRICOM educational resources on social media and in your community. And on that page, again, you can get, we have some graphics that you can use. We have toolkits. We have brochures you can print out to distribute them. There's a hashtag shut down AFRICOM uh, to use. And so just go to that page and it has everything. I just wanted to be able to get that out there before time ran out. It has everything people need to know to to create, to get involved and to educate ourselves about AFRICOM. And that we know that and know that the only way to uh, to defeat something as ominous as U.S. militarism, starting with the African continent, because it's all over the place, is to create a massive movement, people-centered movement for justice and demilitarization. And this is what the International Month of Action is designed to do. People around the world, we're asking them to uh, to get involved. Now, back to your question. And I think um, the Biden administration, when it comes to Cuba, and it's very interesting, it started off uh, talking as if it was going to um, go back to Obama 
Obama administration policies. So the the Barack Obama administration waited till the end of its you know last term, the end the last years of the last last term in office to start implementing uh, policies that would normalize relations with Cuba or begin to normalize it because the normalization is a is a longer process and especially for something uh, that. Uh, where there was no normalizing, no diplomatic relations for Cuba for long, ever since it's, it's uh, the youth, the revolution in, in 1959. And so, when, so it was starting that and it initiated that. Um, and through a series of negotiations, one, one, they opened up the embassies and the different respective countries. They weren't open before. They had only what was called intersections, what countries have when they don't have formal diplomatic relations. But the U.S., policy has always been to destabilize Cuba, has been to use U.S. tax dollars to put propaganda up about Cuba, to co-opt Cuban citizens on the ground, to fund and nurture and support the right-wing, you know, extremist Cuban exiles, most, mostly in Miami, some of them even creating organizations uh, that orchestrated terrorism on, I mean, terrorism, literal, literal terrorism on the um, on the island, orchestrated from Miami, where they had planes dropping bombs and putting up drums of fuel in ships and blowing up, you know, cruise ships and things like that, or, or ships that were, they were uh, cargo ships that were transporting sugar, the Cuban cargo ships, uh, planting bombs in hotels, blowing up a Cuban airline. And once you, I mean, I'm only mentioning some of the things, but there's thousands of these incidences. They blew up in 1976, I believe, it's 76. They blew up these, these these terrorists, Cuban terrorists, and blew up a Cuban Cubana airliner that was flying from uh, over Barbados, flying from Venezuela. And they all 73 people on board perished. And though and Orlando Bosch was one of the masterminds of that, has publicly taken credit. Had been lived before he passed away as an old man. Had been living in free in Miami, drinking mojitos. Him and uh, uh, I'm sorry, I, I said Orlando Bosch. I misspoke. I meant uh, Luis Posada Carriles was the person. But Orlando Bosch is another one of them. Both living, you know, free in in, in Miami. Just the, the heads of of the right wing extremist uh, uh, elements. Uh, anti-revolution, anti-Cuban revolution elements. They're Cubans and living like that. And they, they just spent their lives trying to find ways. And the U.S. is known. They were trained by, they were part of the CIA operation before, the, you know, during the, and so the U.S. is known about them. They've never done anything. I think they have the nerve to have Cuba on the terrorist list. Now, that's just, you know, some of the, the, uh, the history kind of, I mean, I'm not even going to also them co-opting uh, Cuban citizens on in on the island by giving them money and advantages and stuff like that to pose as quote-unquote human rights activists and, and quote-unquote independent journalists. I call them, you know, because this is the, what they want to call them, meaning, well, you're not, you're independent because you're not part of the communist state media, right? But you're not independent because you part of, you're working with the U.S. government right. against your country. And so these are the kind of things that they do. The Biden, and then when Biden, uh, I'm sorry, the Trump, um, the, the Obama administration was really responding to the popular sentiment in the U.S. to normalize relations in Cuba, because these policies have been becoming uh, unpopular for a long time, and I take pride in having been part of that movement to make them unpopular. Then Obama responds. 
Obama's plan really in the Obama administration was not to really uh, respect the sovereignty and self-determination of Cuba. It was it its idea was the this is an un this policy has not worked all these years. Basically saying we got to undermine them another way. Let's let's, <laughs> let's normalize relations and maybe overrun them with capitalist industries and all that kind of stuff, and then maybe it'll collapse as socialism will do that way. So anyway, as they started the normalized relations, the Cuban five who were fighting terrorism were, were released. They started negotiating certain things like, you know, postal services and telecommunications or what services between the countries, things like that that didn't exist. And then Trump comes in and they also ease restrictions on travel. You know, people, people don't realize that travel restrictions are, are enforced by what's known as the Trading with the Enemy Act. And a lot of these things were known enforced by the Trading with the Enemy Act that the U.S. has, which it was began to enacted to, to deal with how to deal with, uh, to restrict things with countries that you're at war with. Now, it doesn't amend it so it could be even, you know, countries you're not, quote-unquote, at war with. But it's saying that they're at war with Cuba. Cuba has done nothing to the United States, and, you know, it never did, even after the revolution, of course, there's still nothing, but they would consider it trading with the enemy. Why is Cuba your enemy? So anyway, as, and this still exists, it's still existing under Obama, there are things that, that Obama did ease, Trump reversed almost everything. Biden comes in, talks a little bit like during his campaign, like he was going to scale back that stuff, and then did a 180 and hasn't done anything, really. Uh, to to restrict to reverse Trump's Trump's reversal of Biden stuff, and Trump basically was enforcing some. And it, he had actually more Trump had more tightened restrictions against Cuba, and the, and the blockade against Cuba is like it's really and it's like no other. And we call it a blockade because it's not just about trade; it's a complete, uh, multifaceted, uh, protracted act of war, all kinds of forms of subversion, using social media and all kinds of things and just, you know, all kinds of things that they use. Um, and that now Biden pretends that, you know, all the rhetoric is like it needs to stop this totalitarian government and support the democracy on the island as if he's doing some of the wishes of the people on the island. You know, last, it was a, a year ago, uh, in July, they, the uh, right-wing or not, or the actual government of the U.S. took advantage of some unrest that was going on because of the pandemic and the, you know, scarcity of things. And people started expressing their dissatisfaction with things, and they wanted to, to blow it up, to mushroom it into this anti-government thing. They found people that did, you know, they were as minimal to that, and then took advantage of the people, unwitting people who really just wanted some redress for, for some of the uncomfortable things, but weren't really trying to under, undermine the government. And so now. There's, there's been a request. I mean, that's just to make it short because I know we're running out of time. The led by, I think it's Code Pink, just sent a letter to the Biden administration saying, take Cuba off the list of state sponsors of terrorism. People don't realize these are these lists are not just an innocuous thing that, you know, the U.S. is declaring you're a terrorist, so they're not going to call it your names. It actually has serious implications for their ability to access international finance, you know, loans and companies, not just Cuba, but I mean, actual companies that aren't Cuban, that aren't, you know, that are not even government, can't do business or any kind of thing with just the name Cuba or whatever. <laughs> it's kind of really crazy stuff or be subject to fines, like really heavy fines. And so it's a way to isolate the country. So when they put them on this list, 
it makes it uh, it dis it dissuades any institution or business or anything from doing any kind of acts, any kind of uh, uh, transactions with the Cuba with Cuba at all, whether it's the government or anything in any entity on the on the island. Um, and so the Trump administration has been asked to at least do that, and you know, so far they haven't responded to any kind of uh, anything of that nature. But I recommend of those organizations led by Copink for, for putting that that letter out and then we encourage people to you know, I think it's a sign on letter, but encourage but people need to we need to make our voices heard around Cuba because Cuba's done so much for the world. It's really just the opposite of the, you know, how the US shows up in the world. It sends doctors and teachers places, it creates vaccines for stuff like COVID and tries to offer them to the world and then offers help free healthcare education to its own citizens. They have a serious uh, democratic process there that the US peace citizens here should envy, you know, despite all the the rhetoric, the, the propaganda that they say about the country. It's a very sophisticated, interesting, you know, process that's been, in, in, you know, that's been going on for decades now. But anyway, that's my take on the question. And, and you know, I think this raises the issue, Netfa, of, uh, you know, voting and what people are actually voting for. And I know we've got two minutes left. And I think in, in, in regard to the Biden administration, one of those things, one of those many things that we all got, well, not we, that people who voted for Joe Biden got duped on was the issue of policing and some kind of police reform. Clearly, that's not happening. So in the last couple of minutes, how can people become more aware of the need for community control over the police and why that needs to be a ballot issue and not just something that us crazy radical uh, 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 radicals talk about. Hey, so, you know, I'm actually doing a workshop on this very topic. Thank you. It's called the ballot and community control of the police is for the Sojourner Tooth School on September 29th from five to six thirty. It's free. Um, and people should, let me, I'm sorry. Uh, I think it's the truthschool.com is the is the um is the website truthschool.org. Uh-huh. <laughs> truthschool and and what we the, to answer your question is that we really need to be organizing like self survival programs and things in our in our communities, but at the same time waging a two pronged approach where we're challenging the the legal the state legitimate uh, legally. And so we can use referendums and ballot initiatives to do that at the same time that they were organizing for people-centered public safety in our communities. And that's what that work, that uh, workshop is about. Absolutely. Always comes back to organizing here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., because that's what we do when we're not on the air. But we're out of time for today's show. That'll do it. We'll be back tomorrow with a whole new show. Thanks so much for joining. Until tomorrow. Peace. By any means necessary.